Hello there, my name is Jamie Adams. And I'm Ian McAllister, and this is Brainwaves episode 137, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. These are the headlines for the week of 19th of February, 2024. Hasbro loses out, embrace your shareholders, and Gamebound finds its feet. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves. It's that time of year when big companies start talking about the state of their finances, and it isn't looking particularly good for Hasbro, the company that owns Wizards of the Coast. Hasbro lost $1 billion in the fourth quarter of last year, largely made up of charges related to its sale of E1, its entertainment channel that was sold to Lionsgate at the end of 2023. The entertainment sector of the company showed a $1.1 billion loss, and consumer products, including things like Transformers and My Little Pony, lost $126 million. This was slightly offset by a rise in the Wizards of the Coast and digital gaming segment, which showed a $103 million profit for that quarter. That put Hasbro as a whole with profits down 23% in the quarter, with the only segment of the company showing positive growth being Wizards and Digital Gaming, which was up 7%. Now that whole year performance has Hasbro down 15% across the company, with again, Wizards and Digital Gaming being up 10%. Now this sounds like good news for the tabletop segment of the company. Unfortunately, things are never quite as clear-cut as that. Looking at the Wizards and Digital Gaming segment further, most of the money came from the licensing of intellectual properties in the digital gaming space. Tabletop sales from Wizards of the Coast was actually down 1.3% in the financial quarter and only up 0.1% over the course of the year. A lot of the revenue in this segment came from Baldur's Gate 3 and Monopoly Go. Hasbro expects Wizards of the Coast revenue to be down about 3-5% to across 2024, but CEO Chris Cox was upbeat about the company's performance on the earnings call. In a statement on the Hasbro site, Chris said... Guided by our strategy of fewer, bigger, better, we had important wins across both toys and games while making progress in our transformation during a challenging 2023. Despite the macroeconomic backdrop, we are entering 2024 with a healthier balance sheet, a leaner cost structure, and a diverse portfolio of industry-leading toy and game brands that support our capacity to invest in the business and maintain our commitment to returning cash to shareholders by our category-leading dividend. Our refreshed leadership team is bringing innovative new products to our fans. At the same time, we are taking the necessary actions to transform Hasbro and deliver long-term profitable growth, starting with driving significant profit growth across our segments in 2024 and building momentum in our innovation pipeline between now and 2025. We would like to remind listeners that Hasbro fired about 2,000 staff over the course of last year, including 1,100 of those in the run-up to Christmas. No mention of the layoffs was made in a statement or conference call other than allusions being made to actions the company had taken in the fourth quarter to balance the books. Some of the people fired were behind the liaison with Larian Studios to make Baldur's Gate 3, and others were behind some of the Magic the Gathering projects that made Hasbro a lot of money last year, even if the overall segment was only just slightly up. Could have been a lot worse for Hasbro if, if those products had not existed. After the reporting of the conference call, shares in Hasbro fell sharply. Now another little reminder, Chris Cox earns a base salary of $1.5 million but frequently goes home with a lot more than that. Of course, they, they always do, as a base, base salary. Yeah. This is almost like, you know, the pandemic was really good for Hasbro. So good. Uh, but now times have changed and it's, you know, you parrot it sometimes, but we are in a cost of living crisis. 
and suddenly people don't have as much money to spend on your stuff anymore. People don't need to spend stuff on you, uh, spend money on your stuff anymore. It's, unsus- it's an unsustainable, it's almost like it's a microcosm for an unsustainable system that is driving major economies. And I'm going to stop. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird thing to me that like a lot of these companies seem to have like, like, so like, obviously there's the board game sector saw a huge growth in the pandemic for obvious reasons. I mean, computer games was exactly the same and we're seeing massive layoffs right across computer games right now. I mean, we're going to get to some of that in, the, in a moment, but loads and loads of people have lost their jobs out of the computer games industry. Uh, the bicycle trade, which I've just exited as well, had huge problems because they they all bought bikes as if the peak of the pandemic was going to be how bikes were bought forever, and now they have too much stock. It it just it does blow my mind that these companies don't understand like a simple peak and trough demand. <laughs> it just but the whole point of it is it's going to keep going forever. It's going to keep going forever. And they cannot, we, we could not expect that things would change, that human beings are, if not mercurial, then just change their ideas and whims on a dime. I mean, if they had bought, if they had bought that stuff in at a peak that had no other like external factors, like they were just seeing a peak in sales, you could maybe forgive them a little bit. But a peak in a very, very unusual period of cultural change, like a pandemic, maybe a bit more cautious. <laughs> And everyone kept saying this is the new normal, but that is not related to financial earnings and trends in marketing. And and how people buy things. We are not finished with big companies behaving like... Well, words that we can't say on this cast. Now, yeah, Embracer Group, uh, we've covered a couple of times before. They are a Swedish-based investment company that for the last couple of years has been on a buying spree across the digital gaming industry. Now, of course, the reason this cash keeps an eye on them is that they also own Asmodee, who own a load of board game companies, including like Fancy Flight Games, loads of European companies, and of course are the main distributor in the UK as well for board games. Now, recently, Embracer Group have been shuttering studios left, right, and center, which is due to the fact that a deal that was rumored to be with the Saudi Investment Fund fell through in 2023. The value of that deal was rumored to be around about $2 billion, so they lost that in investment. Embracer, over the course of the last year, have laid off close to 8% of their workforce. That's about 1,400 people at very well-regarded studios across the world. And loads of people have been losing their jobs and numerous projects getting cancelled. Embracer recently reported that board game sales were slightly down across the globe, with the United States lagging behind Europe. Sales at Asmodee were slightly up, mostly down to trading card game sales, because Asmodee distribute things like Pokemon in uh, the UK and Europe. Embracer also noted that they had seen good revenue from their ownership of the Lord of the Rings gaming license, and that came from sales of the Lord of the Rings Magic the Gathering tie-in and various other projects. Now, just a reminder that Wizards of the Coast, who are nothing to do with Asmodee, make the Magic the Gathering Lord of the Rings tie-in, but uh, Embracer licensed the IP for that product. Lars Wingerforce, CEO of Embracer Group, said this in a statement. As part of the restructuring program, Embracer still has a few larger structured divestment processes ongoing that could strengthen our balance sheet and further reduce capex, that is capital expenditure. Processes are in mature stages. Certain companies might initiate restructuring before any divestment is announced. Our overruling principle is always to maximize shareholder value in any given situation. The tabletop game segment of the company delivered 4.4 billion uh, Swedish kroner, about 333 million pounds, and was up 1%. From the statement, For the calendar year, the tabletop mass market saw a slight growth, confirming the industry's resilience, with Asmodee's strong position key to its robust growth. 
No, it's absolutely delightful to know that Embracer only really cares about their shareholders and not the thousands of staff that they have fired across the globe because they made they don't a huge, care. huge error because they don't care. I mean, both these stories should highlight the complete and utter callousness of corporations. And that if you are an employee of, of such a corporation, please join a union. Please get yourself protected. Please make sure you will land on your feet should they decide to just summarily fire you. Admittedly, that happens more in American studios where labor laws are a little bit la- more lax. But yeah, be careful out there, folks, especially if you're in digital gaming right now. Or if you're in gaming in general right now, things are very, very tenuous. It's, it's, I would say it's part of the, um, one of the overriding issues of the, the tabletop industry, uh, the tabletop business. And again, no matter what we say, this is a business. It is about making money, unfortunately. People can go into it with the, we can go into it with the best of intentions. You want to make the gaming space better. But a lot of that is making money from selling your stuff. And it is, you want more stuff. You need more stuff. You sell, sell more stuff. Which is, you know, why it's sometimes nice to uh, have podcast for example like cult of the old uh, hosted by our very own ian McAllister, along with some uh, very well-regarded others looking at older games that people might go ah but you know those older games they're still good they're still really good quite a lot better than some games that are coming out now let's be honest but that's not the point the point is corporations don't care about you but ian it's all change in the world of crowdfunding kickstarter what was the only crowdfunding platform for many years saw tabletop revenue fall to $226.2 million in 2023 from $236.4 million in 2022. There are many possible reasons for this, but one of them might be the increasing competition in the crowdfunding marketplace. One of them, GameFound, has had a fantastic 23 with revenue from crowdfunding rising to $56 million, up 98% on the previous year. Now, four of GameFound's campaigns were among 2023's most funded campaigns. Now, while it's smaller, with 142 campaigns against Kickstarter's 4,920, its per-project average is massively higher. GameFound take in $394,366 per project on average, whereas Kickstarter sits at 45982 GameFound founder Martin Schwerkot said... I would say 2023 was a breakthrough year for us. Still a lot to do and we are nowhere near our final vision. But 2023 was kind to us and we are very hopeful for 2024. Uh, now we're recording on the 16th of February and announced just a few hours ago on site Polygon, publisher Cool Mini or Not has signed an exclusive deal with the platform to host Cool Mini or Not's future crowdfunding campaigns. Cool Mini or Not, responsible for games such as Cthulhu Death May Die, the many, many zombicides, and games such as Ankh, Blood Rage, and Rising Sun. David Pretty, Cool Mini or Not's chief operating officer, said, At Cool Mini or Not, we always look to innovate and provide the best products and experiences for our customers. GamePound has a number of excellent features that our fans have been asking for, and we feel their platform is a great fit for us as we move into the future. We want the consumer experience to be as smooth as possible, and GameFound gives us the tools we need so we can focus on creating great games. Give an idea of the scale of Cool Mini or Not on the platform. We can tell you it has raised over $100 million for Kickstarter since 2012, with an average of just under $2 million per project. I mean, that is a massive blow to Kickstarter. I mean, Kickstarter is already seen suffering a bit from the competition in the space. Obviously, it's down a bit already, but to lose a massive 
but I mean, uh, Cool Mini or Not had three projects on Kickstarter last year in 2023. Um, I did a quick calculation in my head while I was looking at the numbers. They, those three projects alone took in close to like nine and a half million dollars. Oofed. Yeah. So it's a, a significant portion of the tabletop sort of take of Kickstarter there. So yeah, that's going to, and I, I would imagine others will like look at that and go, hmm, maybe we should jump ship too. Because if 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 Kilmini are not there, maybe we get more eyes on our project, you know. Well, as you know, we've said for a long time, Kickstarter, um, one of its most successful sides has been the tabletop gaming side. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, you know, it's still there's still lots of tech, there's still lots of lots of different Kickstarters, but it's a very general template that they use. Whereas GameFound is a crowdfunding platform specifically set up for tabletop games. I think video games, maybe. I honestly don't know. Yeah, it's it's, t- it's tabletop specific. Cool. You you can kind of understand. Also, with Kickstarter, I mean, there was other things like Indiegogo as well. There was lots of them, but Kickstarter was just the domineering one. It had a monopoly on crowdfunding almost. And what's the thing about monopolies? As we learned from the board game Monopoly, they are bad. And it's kind of almost chickens coming home to roost. Yeah, I mean, complacent. Kickstarter's had a lot of issues over the last couple of years with rumors of like, nft and blockchain and all sorts of things coming into the back end of the technology used to make kickstarter function uh, that had a lot of people sort of raising their eyebrows then you had like game pound came out of the woodwork backer kit moved from just being the back end of a lot of crowdfunding campaigns to actually having their own site wasn't game found uh, wasn't game found like a back end like yeah. just a fulfillment company and then game went no, we'll do our own thing yeah. yeah cut out the middleman why not do all that because yeah. kickstarter you know it's not a store and uh <laughs> People have got less money right now, so there's less crowdfunding money to spread around that's going to get very, very competitive out there. Exactly. Now, updates. Now, over the last couple of casts, we had reported on the death of Janelle Jaquais, their legacy amongst the tabletop RPG community, and a controversy that had arisen in the wake of their death. Janelle Jaquais was known for writing many sort of Dungeons and Dragons adventures and was uh, a big figure in the trans community for uh, role playing games. Site Alexandrian had originally attributed a particular dungeon design style to Janelle, calling it Jaquais in the Dungeon. As their surname was Jaquaze, many thought it should be Jaquaze in the dungeon. Some back and forth on the matter and a forthcoming book led to it being renamed Xander in the dungeon after Justin Alexander, the person who wrote the original article on his site, The Alexandrian, and who's also the author of the forthcoming book. Justin had also refused to remove Janelle's dead name from the original article on the subject. Justin has put up a new post about the incident laying out the timeline of events and offering an apology for what had happened. In addition, he shares an email from Ava Islam, author of the Erin RPG and friend of Janelle Jaquais. She explains in detail why Justin's reaction to what had happened had hurt so many in the trans community. Justin shares this email with the permission of Ava. It's pretty extensive, so we aren't going to read it all out here, but we did want to pick out this particular paragraph. You have seen, even in the wake of Anne writing her post and your response, how much information degrades on the internet. We live in a world where Signal definitely lost the war to noise. By changing the name of the term itself, you're ensuring vast swathes of people you you reach will never know about Janelle's contributions and influences, will never discover her work the way so many people did prior when the term was jaquaying or jaquazing. It took on a life outside of your post, even absent any mention of the article. Just using the term would ensure that some people who didn't otherwise know about Janelle would find out about her. 
Anne mentioned in that piece is the author of the original article that brought the controversy to light. You can find links to that in our show notes. Anne has since updated the piece, accepting that Justin made some honest mistakes and reflecting on the piece that she originally wrote. Justin rounds out this second article by saying this. Ava, Anne and the wider trans community, I hear you and I understand. What has resonated with me through my conversations is that there is a mismatch between my perception of events and the wider community's perception of events because I have thought of these things primarily in the context of Janelle and I have ignored the effect on the wider trans community. So when I privately apologised to Janelle years ago and we mended our fences and then spent years in a distant but friendly professional relationship recommending each other for work and that sort of thing, I thought I had reached an understanding and healed any harms. But I was ignorant of and ignoring the harm to a wider community. A private communication cannot heal a public harm. Therefore, to the trans community, let me say clearly and publicly, I am very sorry for the harm I've caused you. Uh, so yeah, we do recommend that you go and read the full thing on Justin's site that has the full um, Ava email and also more uh, on his apology and the timeline of events. Uh, we're just very glad that the situation has been brought to a conclusion in a way that all parties are happy with. Now, Jamie, some background about a company we've covered a couple of times. In episodes 131 and 136, we brought you news of RPG company Evil Genius Games and their battles with Netflix over the rights to the RPG Rebel Moon the film from Zack Snyder. EN World, a site dedicated to RPG news, has just released an investigation into Evil Genius Games and revealed several troubling facts about the company. The article covers allegations of staff not getting paid, a drive to incorporate AI and NFT technology into the games they were producing, and a general culture of mistreating staff. Now, the investigation is great. We don't want to repeat it verbatim here at the risk of diluting its effect. We wanted to make you aware of the troubles with the company and point you at the article in question, which you can find in our show notes. But just beware. There is some, how do I put it politely, bad stuff in there. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to denigrate you as listeners. It's just keeping it no, people need to be aware. Yeah, it it, it does uh, it does sort of um, detail some sort of uh, abusive staff and, and things like that. And so, yeah, uh, it's a yeah trigger warning for, for for that kind of stuff in there for sure. Now on to the news. We have reported many times on the controversies that the ancient game of chess finds itself in on a regular basis. From cheating allegations to the Women's Year in Chess being sponsored by a breast enlargement company, the organisational body FIED can't seem to keep the sport out of the spotlight for all the wrong reasons. And now Chess finds itself once more under scrutiny. Reported on the BBC News site, Divya Deshmukh, an 18-year-old international master, went online recently to complain about the way women were treated when playing chess. Divya shared this post at the end of a recent Tata Steel chess tournament in the Netherlands. From that post... It's a sad truth that when women play chess, people often overlook how good they actually are, and every irrelevant thing is focused on. She said that she had wanted to address the issue for a while and had been receiving derogatory comments about her appearance and the way she speaks since she was 14. Thousands of people liked the post, including Grandmaster Susan Polgar. Sharing her own experiences on Twitter, Susan said... When I was a young chess player, I consciously tried to look as plain and unattractive as possible. I never did not even touch makeup until I was in my 20s. Most people never knew why. I never really talked about it. There were two main reasons. One, it is because I was tired of being sexually harassed or assaulted and hit on constantly by male chess players. 
Two, we were so poor that I had no money for fancy clothes. Most male chess players cannot understand what many girls or women have to endure in chess, especially back then. Sexism and discrimination in chess still exist today, just not as much. Susan says more in that post, including that she was at times fearful for her life and that many male players thought she was there to pick up men and wouldn't take no for an answer. It's a pretty good little piece. Uh, we do recommend it and we'll put links to it in our show notes. Now, FIDE, uh, who are the governing body of chess, really should be doing a lot more to make women feel safe when playing at chess tournaments. It's an organization that we've reported on many times before. We know they're stacked with white men. There's maybe two or three women representatives on the FIDE board, uh, but they just don't seem to care very much about this kind of thing. The game has come some way since uh, the days of Susan Polgar being our, uh, at the height of her powers, but it's still got a long, long way to go. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago we were reporting on the breast enlargement company sponsoring the women's year in chess, and it's like, that's just, no. Der- but. Der- derogatory comments. She was 14. Yeah. Come on, this is, this is abhorrent. I, I keep saying this again and again. Chess, you are much as some people like to say you're not, you're part of the tabletop games industry. You like to think, we like to keep saying that we are an inclusive industry, that we're better than all that. We are not. Do you know how we get better? By stomping this out. Indeed. Now let's go on to something a little bit more lighthearted. Back in episode 132, we covered the news that Snowbright Studio was working on the non-binary tabletop award. Snowbright is a studio exclusively staffed by LGBTQ plus people. The award is being designed to highlight the work of non-binary creators in the tabletop industry. The first winner of the award is the team behind Women Are Werewolves, CES Taylor and Yonsu Julian Kim. The role-playing game won Dicebreaker's best role-playing game last year and uses tarot cards to give players prompts that allow them to explore relationships to gendered spaces and family customs. Taylor and Julian Kim said... No queer art is one size fits all. We hope to see games that reflect those differences even as we celebrate each one together. The second accolade goes to Cloud Empress by what? This is a mothership RPG campaign that is very Studio Ghibli inspired. In Watt's own words? Cloud Empress started with a bit of wish fulfillment, namely the desire to cast magic in the mothership rule system. Like my favourite, and probably all of Hayao Miyazaki's works, I tried to create a setting where tenderness and intimate communities existed without turning away from the horrors human beings face every day to survive, live, and love. The final award went to Matthew Makak, who runs a YouTube channel called Room 51 with his brother Justin. Matthew said this about his hopes for the community. My hopes for 2024 is to see more non-binary board game content creators, designers, and industry workers. I often feel lonely as a non-binary content creator, and I don't want to be the only one, nor speak for the entire community. We belong here, we play here, this is our sandbox too. I hope folks can see there is enough sand for all of us. If you've listened to the podcast a fair bit before, you know I love talking about the awards, because it's very interesting to see what people are saying that they like, and the fact that we are seeing lots of awards that are things like this, like non-binary. Brilliant. As... As uh, Matthew said, often feel lonely. Don't want to be the only one to speak for the entire community. This is theirs too. Brilliant. Let's have this. Let's have all these wonderful games that are being shared and celebrated. This wonderful wealth of voices and, and experiences. I can't add any more to that. Yep, a diverse creator and sort of content writer, writers, video makers, whatever community is great for all of us. It's really good. Different voices, different perspectives on how games are and what they can bring 
is always good. Brilliant. Now time for jobs, opportunities and events that we brought on every episode. Yeah, as usual, we'd just like to remind you about the Tabletop Jobs Facebook group that has got some good offers in there. It's mostly US-based, but there have been some European and UK jobs on there of recent. And we'd just like to draw your attention to a grant coming from Magic the Gathering. Now, if you've ever dreamed of heading to some of the big Magic the Gathering events and proving just how wizard you are, then you might want to check out the new Perspectives grant that is being offered by Wizards of the Coast. They are giving out 10 grants worth $2,000 towards travel, accommodation, and expenses to attend a Magic Con. These events have panels, the opportunity to meet folk involved in creating Magic the Gathering, and of course, big tournaments. You will also get a Black Lotus VIP package for the con you attend. I couldn't find out exactly what that meant, uh, but it seems to be access to exclusive events and the like, But and some reports have it been worth in the region of $700. I assume it's yeah. not the Black Lotus card. It's not. It's not an actual Black Lotus. No. Oh, if 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 you're not a Magic the Gathering fan um, like me and have only very vaguely aware of what a Black Lotus is, it's like an early card that is quite good and extremely rare. Yeah, and very very valuable. Now the application is due in by this Wednesday, the twenty first of February at eight PM Pacific Standard Time. So get on that if you're here in the cast on the Monday it goes out on. we'd just like to give a wee shout out to all our patrons thank you so much for continuing to support the cast especially to Kevin Bertram from Fort Circle James Naylor from Naylor Games and Sean Newman from the Game Alt team our executive producers you can join them for just one dollar a month on our Patreon to support the cast and help us fund the hosting of the podcast and site and there are various other ways to support us that you can find on the site as well Jamie you're getting a job doing Dungeons and Dragons stuff on stage right I do you know what I think I'd quite like that actually I've only been to one before. Has it been one? I think definitely one. I think you'd be good at it. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. But uh, yeah, there's no doubt, no doubt that Dungeons & Dragons had a, st- I mean, as we say a lot of the time, it's had a stellar run over the past couple of years. It's a cultural juggernaut. Culture, you know what? I This and Wingspan, and I'm sure there's more, but they are cult- They are absolutely cultural juggernauts. If I'm, It's going to be on my gravestone, isn't it? Here lies Jamie. He said things were cultural juggernauts, whether or not they were true. Get you a t-shirt. Oh, goodness. D&D, featured in films. A good film that I showed Ian a couple of months ago. Cartoons, computer games, streaming, countless pieces of merchandise and, a- and actual plays made displaying the famous logo. Not content with filling arenas such as the O2 in London, the RPG is now coming to the stage in an official production called The Twenty-Sided Tavern. At Dungeons & Dragons, the 20 side of Tavern, the audience is not just a viewer, but the fourth player, influencing key decisions via Gameotics, a browser-based software that allows to vote on where the story will go, what characters appear, what experiences they explore, and more. With a cast of five actors and over 30 playable characters, audiences will experience an expansive fantasy world set in the Forgotten Realms and face riddles, puzzles, combat, and more to help shape the story. Laughter will flow like ale, and with audiences in full control and exciting reveals around every corner, no two shows are alike. For those seeking a more daring experience, there are opportunities to join the action on stage and test your strength, or dexterity, wisdom, or charisma, through a variety of rollicking games, including trivia, charades, and the ever-popular fantasy beer pong. Featuring behind-the-scenes talent from popular theatrical shows such as Dimension 20, Marvel's Rogers the Musical, Beavis the Butthead, and more, Dungeons & Dragons The 20-Sided Tavern is the game you know and the experience you love, but bigger and better than ever. 
Now, the show is going to be happening at Stage 42 in New York, USA. And you can get tickets now at the link in our show notes. We're not being paid by them. Just, it's an interesting. But if they'd like to fly us over for a review, well, you know, we're happy to accept that. Yeah, and if you want to work for them, they're looking for stage crew and actors. I might actually fire them a thing going, hi. Because I never know. I mean, you know, I'm always looking for work. Uh, be weird. Um, yeah, we've seen interactive RPG style shows for quite a while. Uh, things like The Dark Room, which started online and then has a very successful show, does UK Games Expo pretty much every year for the last five or six years. And the fr- Edinburgh Fringe. And the Edinburgh Fringe, of course. And yeah, the Edinburgh yeah. Fringe is full of role-playing games for like an hour. And there's a bunch of comedians playing it. Comic Relief has been doing it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes I... I'm entirely unsure about some of these shows. I've been to definitely one that I can remember. I've never, I've never partake, partaken. I really should at some point just to figure out if I like it or not. I've, I've never partook, but I went with some friends about six or seven years ago during the Fringe to see one. It was late at night. And while I enjoyed it, I felt it leaned a bit more towards the silly, which I completely understand why, because you've got an hour. I'm like, right, do you have silly? Where, where do you fall on the, it's really silly, and you want to tell like an interesting story. Yeah. And call me old fashioned because I mean, heck, I'm 30, I'm a 33 year old communist. I'm in a, I'm in the, the body of a, you know, an older man, it seems. Um, I'm like, I, I like a little bit of story in my, you know, in my RPGs. Silliness is fine. But if it's all silly, uh, you need, you need a little something to ground it. But then again, maybe I'm not the uh, target market because I'm grumpy and old. Call into Jamie's RPG advice line anytime you'd like. The number is... No. Well, then to Dice Waves, my spin-off podcast where I complain about dice and why my dice won't roll properly. In a five-hour session, I mostly failed my dice rolls. My dice hate me, Ian. They hate me, Anyway, Ian. thanks very much for listening, everyone. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out, share the podcast, drop us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also follow all of our other hosts at tabletopgamesblogs.com. You can be here this week. Uh, you can come along to our Discord to chat to our friendly community, uh, play games with us, and just learn about the news before we get to it on the cast. Um, our, we are no longer on Twitter. We're just on Blue Sky these days. I mean, I'm on Twitter, us- but you're on, you're on Blue yeah. Sky. The, the giant brain itself is not on Twitter anymore. Yes. Uh, Instagram and Facebook, you can find us as well. Website is giantbrain.co.uk and our email is giantbrainuk at gmail.com. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks' time and we'll see you then. See you later, everybody. Bye.